Are we are we on? Are we are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. Try to make Europe sexy with all sense. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> <laughs> what up? Are we Europe? Boom. You're about to listen to our live radio show. In Brussels, our editorial team met at the Jackie Cafe to discuss beyond the headlines of war, our latest issue. From design to language to pictures, they explained the difficult choices behind the publication of a magazine about war. Um, hi everyone, uh, welcome to Jackie. I'm super happy to see all of you. Uh, so we're going to start uh, today's uh, show with Annelaine and Julie. Annelaine is our wonderful editor-in-chief and Julie is our wonderful deputy editor. Uh, if you have any questions, just, you know, uh, for the people in the cafe, raise your hand um, at the end. And for people online, just put them in the chat and we'll make sure that we can answer them. All right. Thank you. Um, this is super exciting to be in a coffee shop making a live radio show. It's also our very first time, so if anything goes wrong, <laughs> be patient. Uh, be kind. <laughs> we have people listening in from all over the continent online, so also um, if maybe people here on the mezzanine could be a little bit silent so it doesn't pick up your voices too much, uh, we'll get this started. Like Mia said, I'm the editor-in-chief. Julie is my amazing deputy editor. We sit side by side every day. <laughs> It's really nice. Um, and this is also a nice exercise for us to look back on the magazine that we most recently made, Beyond the Headlines of War, and, and how that came about because While it might be one of our best issues to date, it certainly was also one of our most difficult ones mm. to make. And it all started with just the decision to make it. Yeah, which I think uh, obviously came about due to uh, events happening in the world. So all of a sudden, uh, our slow newsroom, which usually focuses itself on um, producing magazines quite in advance, suddenly had something that was happening that we neither wanted to ignore nor um, Yeah, refused to talk about because of our previous editorial uh, lines. So we kind of just had to make a decision to make this magazine and then push everything else a little bit further away. But yeah. how did we come to make that decision? Because it took us a little bit of uh, time. We were a bit hesitant at the beginning. Oh, yes, super hesitant. And I, we will be completely transparent in this show. <laughs> um, I will. I will also admit that making that decision for me personally, as a human being and as a journalist, probably was was the hardest on a personal level. Um, I have a background in uh, in conflict reporting, in which my boss would go to conflict zones all the time, but that period of my life and that job had taken over my life completely. There was no rest, not one minute. Um, and, and so you were always alert and, and you also, I was also probably the only one in our team 
who knows how much it can take over your life. You have to check the news all the time and everything comes in on a, on a very emotional level, but then you have to be professional about it. At the same time, we bring people-centered stories, so we cannot just observe the data and the facts. That That's not what we want. And, and I can be honestly say, I can honestly say that. It took me two days to just get over my own feeling of, but I got away from this. Mm. This wasn't going to be my job anymore. This wasn't going to be my life anymore. In the end, it's just, it's just an, a topic that was way too important to, um, to get my personal emotions uh, yeah, involved yeah. in that. I understand that. And I, I have a background in anthropology, so I'm not necessarily as uh, well-versed in uh, conflict reporting. Um, as Anne-Lane is, and my initial reaction was just that I was afraid because I didn't want to do something wrong. But then I, of course, came to the realization that it's also not great to do nothing and not talk about things and kind of just gloss over this huge event and what it means for uh, the continent, which is very much our focus in our, in our magazine. So we got together and we basically asked ourselves a, bun of, a bunch of different questions um, about uh, the ethics of war reporting and mm -hmm. how there's often a lack of sensitivity and a lack of humanity in the way that war is portrayed in the media. And we asked ourselves a lot of questions about language in particular, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, about how language is power. And so if you uh, flip through our magazine, which I'm sure is available downstairs and also right here, um, we made this page, which is basically how to talk about the war. Um, and we outlaid all the different questions that we asked ourselves and the ways that we tried to make sure that the language we were using was not going to contribute to any harm that was being perpetrated um, yeah. in the media, on the ground, and especially online, where, uh, as I'm sure we've all realized, there is a surreal amount of disinformation happening. Yeah. And I think the nice thing about us deciding to make this magazine is that we really turn this fear and this anxiety that we had as journalists and as people not wanting to do it wrong and to get it wrong into a conversation. Um, so even with that fear, you can either decide to go for it or to not go for it. But we just really took throughout the whole process the time to get back to, okay, for example, the very first question that we had, and this was before we, we decided to do it, and one of the reasons why we decided to do it is that a lot of times when people have talked about the war in the past, uh, you know, wars were predominantly waged in the Middle East. Of course, there's, there are proxy wars. A lot of different nations are involved, but the language around that is very violent and also pointing to certain regions and certain people as almost savages, almost barbarian, you know. Uh, they, the act of warfare that is being done there is talked about with those terms, um, which then of course seeps into how we think about people in the Middle East, the culture in the Middle East, um, the countries there. Um, and, and when the Ukrainian war happened, or the war in Ukraine, um, there was this complete shift um, because it felt so much closer. I thought, wait, is, no, is nobody noticing the differences in, in, in reporting itself? Mm. And then the, once we decided, um, we're like, okay, wait, is this 
the Russian-Ukrainian war, mm -hmm. but then it almost gives this sense of balance, um, almost gives this sense of both parties, both countries in this case, having to gain something from it. Um, is it Putin's war? Um, but then do you maybe undermine the fact that you know, a lot of Russians do support it? course, due to misinformation as well, um, is uh, you know the Ukrainian war. But then, who's who's actually um, acting on it? Um, so a lot of questions that we ask ourselves: Is it an invasion? Is it a conflict? And I'm not saying that we have a hundred percent certainty about these terms, but we try to visualize that conversation uh, into the magazine and also actively going against what. For example, the BBC or The Guardian um, has done, because normally, style guide-wise, when we don't know the spelling of a word or whether we should hyphenate it, whether we should put commas or dots in between numbers, we're like, okay, you know, let's, let's check how The Guardian does it. Let's check how the BBC does it. And now we open some pages and we're like, oh, but wait. Um, yeah, we were like, well, we don't really like this. and. Um we're not sure at the end of the day that they should be the blueprint for everything that's uh, good about journalism and that we can also forge our own path and, and make our own decisions, especially on something that's a bit more sensitive than whether to hyphenate microorganism, uh, which was the conversation we had yesterday. Yeah, that was the last thing we looked up. <laughs> um, but I think the most important part, again, is that this is not a closed conversation. Uh, for example, the word invasion, we talked about, you know, invasion is part of a military strategy. Um, so, of course, it started, in this case, it started with an invasion. When do you call an invasion ended? Uh, did it start in 2015 with an invasion? Is that invasion still going on or should we call it a war? So I think what we also um, not want to do is is pretend to know it all and pretend that the decisions that we made now are going to be the decisions for the rest of, of our careers. So that's also why it's visualized much you know, in, in the way of a conversation. And we, we are always happy to have, uh, yeah, to have other people chiming in. And of course, we do talk to, to a lot of Ukrainian uh, people and to Russian people as well. Uh, and, and, and they also give their opinion and that, that you know, reflects in, into how we do things. Absolutely. I think another interesting aspect as well was the decision to use the Ukrainian spelling for uh, all cities and, and places in Ukraine, uh, which initially, I think, even prior to the... Um, we wrote a newsletter mm -hmm. about it, about the spelling of Kiev, um, which for a very long time, I think, in most major publications, almost everywhere, um, had been spelled with the, the Russian spelling K-I-E-V, and uh, we had decided to transition to KYIV, which is the Ukrainian spelling. And then throughout the making of the issue, we just did that with all the, all the city names. And we had to kind of reference check that uh, with uh, a few of our Ukrainian contributors to make sure that we weren't, obviously, as we're not experts in either language, making uh, the wrong choice um, about that. Yeah, because sometimes even our Ukrainian uh, contributors actually use the Russian spelling because they were writing to us in English, and they're mm. like, well, this is apparently how it's done. Um, so the only changes that we do or that we make to Ukrainian spellings is when um, a certain letter is duplicated and makes it harder for our readers to read. Um, so, you know, for, ex for example, Zelensky, you can also write that in a multitude of ways. We don't do the double Y because when you do read it in English, it doesn't make sense to duplicate a letter like that. 
Absolutely. Maybe we can move on a little bit to talk about the, the content um, of the magazine and mm -hmm. how we went about selecting the stories. Um, maybe, and then you can give us a little bit of uh, a window into how it all started, which is basically she got up from our shared desk and she went to the window behind our shared desk and she just started scribbling all over it. So uh, please, yeah. please explain what you did there. We do have a whiteboard in the office. We're not completely unprofessional. It's just, it's just around the corner of our it's desk. It's further away, though, <laughs> which is a problem. So uh, we have this amazing set of windows that um, looks to the atrium. And uh, like, you know, a whiteboard marker writes on windows, a glass as well. And um, what we wanted to do with this issue is make sure that we had a story from Ukraine, or at least one, but then we also had a story from each of the neighboring countries, including Russia. So of course, uh, first, it was just you know a list, one, one country per window panel that we had, Belarus, um, Moldova. Moldova, Slovakia, uh, Poland, and, um, and then we start thinking about things that go beyond the headlines. So for example, it's not a piece that we have, but it's a piece that structured how we were looking at pieces and commissioning. Um, there was talk about a lot of foreign fighters uh, crossing the border from Moldova into Ukraine. And then you see the numbers, you see the facts, you see that it's happening. But what you don't see is how that might you know, translate into um, national policies and national politics from the countries where those foreign fighters uh, reside or are born in, um, and how that maybe shows a, a, a new issue as well within international humanitarian law. Like, what do you do when your citizens wage war in a different country and possibly, possibly commit war crimes there? Who is going to follow up on that? So we, we looked at headlines like that, uh, the same with X amount of people are um, going from Ukraine to Poland, uh, refugees, you know, big streams, blah, blah, blah. We're like, okay, um, let's look at Poland and Ukraine and do they already have some kind of shared identity because migration between those countries has existed for decades, if not centuries. Um, so those were then the kind of little angles that we, that we put underneath, um, underneath the countries. And for the first time, we commissioned on a rolling base. So normally, we get all pitches in. Like, OK, not only what are the best ones, but also which ones make the most sense combining into a puzzle that shows something that adds another layer. And now we had to, we had to commission not knowing what the next piece would be. So those and also went on, 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 on the window and um, we, we added you know, some, some words to it like, okay, this is intersectional in a way that it also includes talk about this or it includes these voices. Um, so yeah, it was different for us. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very different, um, which is, I think, part of why I'm so um, happy with the way that it came together was that we managed to still have some kind of a logical thread go through the issue, even though we were very much doing things on the fly, which we had not done uh, previously in the past. Um, of the stories that we published, I think maybe we can talk about the ones that marked us the, the most, most or the ones that, yeah the ones that had uh, an impact on us. I guess during the editing process, there was a lot of moments that I remember where, you know, maybe you had read a text first and then I was reading it and I would turn to you and I'd be like, wow. Yeah. Or we'd highlight sentences to each other and be like, this is, 
very, very um, important or interesting or good stuff generally. Um, yeah, or I need to step away for a moment. That too. Do you want to go to the corner store and let's get some chocolate? Yeah. What was the one that stayed with you the most? Um, well, there's a, there's a few. I will say that uh, the diary uh, that we published in the magazine is definitely something that has stuck with me and that everyone who has read it so far and given me some form of feedback has really centered the, the diary as the thing um, that really resonated with them the most and you know made them really understand the, the human side of things because we really, well, I guess I should explain. I don't know if anyone's, yes. uh, everyone's read <laughs> I it. I was going to ask we, you, what is the diary? We asked uh, five young people in Ukraine to hold a diary for us for the first month of the war. So for every single day of the war, you hear from one of these five people. Um, there's Alexander, who is a journalism student based in Zaporizhia. There is uh, Anna, uh, who with her friend Margot uh, went from Odessa to Berlin. Mm -hmm. There is Vesna, who was in Mariupol and made her way to Chisinau in Moldova. And there's Steve and Tom, who are two Nigerian students uh, who escaped to Romania. Yeah, they were based in Kharkiv. Based in Kharkiv, so, yes. Different people in terms of background, what they're studying, how their life is, but also different regions of the country. Because in the beginning, we had no idea how the war would unfold, which regions are going hit, to be hit the most. And, and also, it is as interesting um, we discovered, to, to follow somebody who's in a region that is relatively safe, but still has to carry this anxiety of their whole country and basically identity, you know, uh, at threat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I would say that uh, that definitely marked me, I think, the most. But there's a, another piece that I really, really enjoyed um, as much for the way that it's written as the content, which is our opinion piece of uh, when borders act as mirrors. So basically, Josef Burton, who is one of our contributors, um, wrote about how uh, the situation on the Polish-Ukrainian uh, border today was mimicking that of the Syrian-Turkish border in 2013, and how there's a lot of lessons that can be learned. Um, and he mainly problematizes the limits of uh, solidarity based on similarity. So if we're looking at um, migration and we're thinking about you know, borders that are suddenly thrown open before um, who that were historically a bit more closed only because the people that are now trying to come in look more like us or we feel that we share more of a cultural identity with them and how that doesn't really work for the long term in the ways that I think people might be hoping yeah. so it's a very yeah a very very good piece that I would really recommend reading along with the entire magazine so <laughs> please do Surprisingly, I do agree with you and surprisingly because normally I am the person who goes a little bit against all the analytical pieces, yeah. like the very um, almost difficult to access uh, if you don't have a certain background knowledge. But this one, um, I think, again, goes beyond the headlines because a lot of people have written about, is it fair that we don't treat Afghan and Ukrainian refugees in, in the same ways? But what this piece does, it's, it's not necessarily talking about us as humans, but as about the structure behind it. What happens to the whole structure if um, if you're yeah, if you're showing solidarity based on similarity, but not making that switch to okay, how are we gonna make this work for everybody? Yeah. I think there's a really good point in there where he highlights that, you know, solidarity will last 
less long than the consequences of migration policy. And that's what we need to be really thinking about is thinking more about the long term and how we can make sure that um, structures are not overwhelmed and that people don't fall through the cracks. And of course, we also have photo stories. So the way that Are We Europe makes its, its magazine, it's very design heavy. So we combine different formats of text with photo series. And you know, we sometimes also push the envelope to include slam poetry, to include uh, fictional short stories, to include, I guess you couldn't call it graphic novel because it's not long enough, but you know, that style of comics. Um, and so maybe one, one piece that I also really like that is a photo stories in the magazine is a Transnistria conglomerate. Um, we were commissioning pieces and we had this window panel with Moldova on. Um, I had recently made some friends with Moldova just weeks prior, which really helped me in, in, in kind of brainstorming a little bit and, and in talking to people in Moldova as well, is that within Moldova you have the Republic of Moldova and then you have the breakaway region of Transnistria, uh, which is much more Russia uh, aligned. Uh, Russia is the main language there instead of Romania, uh, as in the rest of Moldova. And so we felt that commissioning only one piece from Moldova, which we did, you know, one piece from Poland, one piece from Slovakia. Um, would kind of erase this uh, complexity within that country as well. So we made sure to commission two, one from, uh, you could say like the traditional uh, Republic of Moldova, the one that's been recognized, uh, and one uh, yeah, from, from the Republic that almost nobody recognizes except for, from the Russian uh, government. Uh, and so that also is a photo series uh, that really just shows the daily life in, uh, in Transnistria, and I really like that. Yeah, I really do. I think they also play nicely off of each other where the one that is about, um, so one of them is about Stephen the Great, who was a 15th century king. And basically when Moldova gained independence in 1992, officially, um, they had all the same you know, symbols and ideals that everyone in the Soviet Union had that were left over from the, the communist era. And they were like, let's start from scratch. So they went to the past to find a way to build their future. Um, so they found Stephen the Great, the old uh, king. And now he's just everywhere. And it's a photo story showing you know, busts of him in schools and administration buildings and paintings and it's it's really lovely and it's kind of interesting to see one that is you know all about going further in the past and then you have the story from Transnistria which very much immortalizes a society that is kind of living a little bit in the past you know there's still people still have Soviet Union passports or, or the paper Transnistrian ones neither of which are recognized um, anywhere outside of uh, Russia um, and it's really yeah it's an interesting play between the the past present and future um, that I think works really nicely together, and I'm glad we could get both of those stories uh, in the magazine. Yeah, a photo that didn't make it into the magazine, but it's really nice, it just, it didn't work well on print, is uh, Stephen the Great even printed on these little grocery bags that you have, like black grocery bags with golden uh, images of Stephen the Great. So it really, it positions the, this almost forgotten person very much into people's everyday lives today. Um, let's maybe talk a little bit about the structure of the magazine, because I think that's something we thought about quite hard. Yeah. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning the different kinds of decisions that we made, because of course we commission the pieces, we edit the pieces, um, we work with our wonderful uh, creative team to, to make the design, 
and uh, you know figure out where things go. But that's actually a lot more thought out than it might seem. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that we stress that that it's very intentional the way things are laid out in the magazine. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it sounds almost boring to talk about mm -hmm. how do you structure a magazine, but uh, we really, especially for this one, we sat down. We had all the pages printed. So the first round of design, uh, our designers come back with all the pages, but in no particular order. Of course, the cover com comes first. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so we sat down, and we know that this is not the easiest magazine to read. It's not. There are certainly things that will make you happy. Um, there are also things that might make you cry, as it made us cry. Um, and we want to make sure that we don't scare off readers within the first five pages, because there's so much of value in there that, that we want to keep that attention and keep that um, engagement with the stories. And so, uh, yeah, so what, we di what did we do first? Uh, well, we, so we printed everything out and we put all the articles together and then just laid them out on the floor because our desk was too small. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know, spent about, I don't really know how long it took. Quite a long time. Quite a long time. <laughs> uh, just sitting on the floor, uh, shifting things around and kind of, explaining to each other why we thought this story should go right before this story or these three should be grouped together because it creates this flow and the diary should be split up like this. And I think one thing we had in mind was um, obviously making it a, a, a full kind of cover to cover experience for the reader where there's no kind of moment where you're just kind of a bit confused about where it's going or, or not sure what's happening. But also, I mean, as you mentioned, we live in the age of headlines and doom scrolling and, and a bit of overwhelm. And we wanted to make sure that everything was kind of properly balanced throughout so that you don't end up feeling um, too overwhelmed by the content, especially the diary. I think the decision was to really kind of break it up because all at once might have been a bit uh, intense. Yeah. So if, you know, the, the, the idea behind the, the positioning of the stories in the magazine ended up being, let's build up in terms of length and in terms of intensity, make sure that there are some, some glimmers of hope and some, some nice feelings in between as well. And then we, we noticed, because that was not deliberately in the editing process of each individual um, article, we noticed that often the, la the very last sentence of an article would be an extremely good bridge to the next one. So I actually wrote some down. Yeah. Um, wait, where I I did? Yeah. So you know, for example, the first time where we uh, stop the diary, um, I think it's Steve and Tom. They arrive at the Polish border, and that's where the diary stops. So the next piece talks about uh, Polish migration, uh, Ukrainian migration into Poland, and and the way that we talk about it is uh, is through music and a, and a shared music style. So it feels a little bit as a as a, as a little bit of a, a breath of fresh air. Um, and then we also made sure that we balanced certain points of view. So there is a piece um, in it. It's called uh, Protest Between Grief and Resentment. Um, it's written from the perspective of a Russian expat who left Russia due to po political um, yeah, reasons, um, wasn't 
happy with the with the government at that time and uh, went to a protest together with Ukrainians against the war. Uh, so it's a it's 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 a piece that talks about this conflict as well. Um, that you're not you're against something that your government is doing. Uh, you're trying to protest, or you do protest together with people who are directly affected. How does that make you feel, and how do you kind of link it back to your own identity and your own nationality? Um, to make sure that it didn't come off as um, as a kind of cover up piece. Um, we did link it then with uh, a visual piece called Collateral Damage, uh, also by a Russian artist um, who has a Telegram channel, and every day he shares a, uh, a story of somebody, a civilian who passed away uh, in the war. So we were just very careful about the balance of voices that we're presenting, and that's also why we combined some pieces together. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a piece, it's the last example I'm going to give, because I could probably go on and on. Um, there's a piece, um, again, a diary entry, and it ends on the, on the sentence, God bless you. And then the next piece goes into um, the religious aspect behind the war, which is also an aspect that we hadn't seen before commissioning. Yeah, that was, I think, one of the pieces where I think I learned the most while I was editing because it was very much looking at the, the religious motives behind the war and the foundation of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church versus uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, which had the patriarchate that extended uh, over um, Belarus and Ukraine. Um, so this kind of division and going back through history and seeing this whole kind of nation-building, identity-building aspect of the war, which was very much about, you know, saying whether or not the existence of something else is valid, which uh, was very interesting and a very well-written piece. Um, I, I am aware of the, of the time. Uh, <laughs> we have another interview coming up after this. Um, but I, I think my last question uh, to us both <laughs> would be, how was it to, to collaborate um, on this with people personally affected by war and of course going through so much more than just an editor asking for some changes or, or for a new article? I think more than ever it was about being also in a position of really listening uh, to what people were saying and to what they wanted to share as opposed to I mean, I can be quite insistent in the way that I want to shape a story and the way that, you know, I think it will come across best and what's missing and all that. But um, I think this was really also about the, the, the human aspect of it and really letting people get out what they wanted to say and then helping them tell the story um, on their own terms, I think. Not that it's not on their own terms normally, but I think there was an extra added layer of sensitivity mm. of also people's you know, emotions and people's safety and the fact that it was extremely real at the time and that no one was kind of looking at things from uh, a distance, which can yeah. sometimes happen. Yeah, um, I think our general vision uh, on editing at Are We Europe is always that we try to stay as true as possible to the voice of the author, which of course we work with collaborators from all over the world, at least all over the continent. So English might not be their first language and they might not even be very good at English. So sometimes it's a little bit of a push and pull. How do we make sure that it's, it's, it's correct, it's readable, but it's also reflects how you think and your thought process. Um, 
I remember one of the very first articles that we published, we got some feedback like, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong. And um, I, I got into a panic and we opened the article. We're like, what mistakes did we leave in here? Uh, you know, grammar or spelling or uh, something that wasn't factually correct. It wasn't actually, it was just a different way of structuring your sentences, you know, it was a Ukrainian piece, so very much based in kind of like the Russian language sphere. Um, and, and it taught me so much about how kind of the links that people, um, that people, yeah, give between, between um, words and kind of what they refer to as, as poetic uh, writing. And of course, uh, I mean, the diary, is is the hardest one in this aspect where you we wanted people writing for us to feel very secure um, and give them enough time to put their thoughts on paper of course we do need some things uh, at a certain date so that was it was a balance and um, it was also a balance in because they are all young uh, Steve is the oldest um, but Tom is underage, Vesna is underage, she's, she's 16. Um, it's also a balance in almost wanting to, to give your own opinion on what they should do or how they should stay safe, which of course, we are in no position to do that. But I was in constant contact with at least uh, three of the authors, so that translates into 20 messages a day with pictures of what is going on with, oh, I'm hearing sirens, uh, oh, I might not answer for days, um, or, you know, there's an explosion right here and I don't know what to do. And, um, and for the first time in our Europe history, we, we had to make um, personal safety files, uh, specifically for Alexander, who at one point, um, the, the specific invasion of, of his city um, looked imminent. And uh, we're like, okay, so this is, a, this is the day that we need to talk about. What's your, your complete full name? Every, like all the telephone numbers from your parents, your girlfriend, do you have birthmarks? What car do you drive? What is the second car that you could drive? What are the license plates? So everything that we had had to go into a personal safety file in case we would lose contact. And that also, of course, creates this very intense relationship that you have with, with authors that we, we didn't have before. And then you also have to let it go at one point. Um, it's not my job or uh, to, to make decisions. I know Vesna from Mariupol really wants to go back. Who am I to say that she shouldn't? Um, I mean, it's easy, she's, she's turning 17 in a month, but I'm also not her and I'm not her family. So it is a very intense communication that you have and then you also have to learn how to deal with it personally. Maybe we could, um, See if we have any questions from the audience. Does anybody have a question? I can go quite far with my microphone. What, what, what do you see as the advantages of your way of, of storytelling and, and reporting and getting the facts on the ground compared to a classical war journalist that goes to a BBC war that is on the, on the ground that's actually being shot at? Mm -hmm. So what do you see that are the, the pros and cons of your methods and what, what are the differences? 
Perfect. Yeah. Um, that brings it back to the very first thing that we talked about um, was whether we should even make this um, magazine. We do not have the resources to send anybody, but we also don't believe that we should. And we, if I can talk about us as a, yeah, we, um, we believe that traditional media should do it less and less um, because very few people will know about the local, um, yeah, the local reality and safety as people who have lived there for their whole lives. Of course, it's also very difficult to put all the responsibility on Ukrainian journalists now who might not be prepared uh, for conflict reporting, who might not have the necessary uh, safety equipment or the necessary training for that. So I think ideally in the future we would see less foreign journalists jumping in, parachuting in with all the resources that they have. They don't even have to be as careful as others, but they bring local producers with them. Uh, in this war, as in pretty much all wars, um, local producers have paid with their lives while working with foreign journalists. And the foreign journalists, most of them, not all of them, have been able to get away. So I think there's, um, there's both a safety and both an ethical perspective to it that, I mean, I can, I can be honest, my, uh, my former boss went, but we, we were, um, we were specialized in Middle East. Uh, nobody of, us, of our team had ever been to Ukraine. So, and same happened with, uh, with other big broadcasters. They might be trained in conflict reporting, but they might not know the local, uh, the local reality, the politics behind it, uh, tensions that have built up for ages that might not be you know, easy to, to read through on, on, on the plane there. Um, so ideally, I personally think that it should be less of something and more of something. So we have a much more balanced collaboration between local journalists working for international media. Yeah, and I would say to speak a bit on the kind of human element that I think our method brings to stories is that we're not necessarily always focusing on the hotspots or the front lines that are already being covered by every you know major media outlet in in the world at this point. We instead are asking very literally what is beyond the headlines of war and how can we center human stories and experiences and and make sure that we're paying attention not just to numbers to, but to people because readers fatigue is very, very real. We get overwhelmed by the numbers and things that don't mean anything to us. When the numbers get too big, we can't imagine it and we can't properly empathize with it. But if we hear, you know, a very, you know, beautifully put or thought about or personal experience or story of a, of a person, uh, I think we are able to be touched more by it than we are if we're just looking at headlines that maybe don't have much relevance or don't bring us as much understanding because we don't know the culture, we don't know the region, we don't know the people, we're not there, we've never been there. So I think it, it brings forward more of an element that everyone can relate to and understand, which is kind of the basis of our humanity, I would hope. Mm. Yeah, another thing that sets us apart in general as Are We Europe is that, so our editorial team is extremely small and is based in Brussels, um, but we work with contributors from all over uh, the continent. And they're often young, new voices in, uh, in journalism. So for this uh, particular magazine as well, we really went into just a younger 
uh, narrative in terms of what does this mean for young people. Not to say that we shied away from history at all. There's a bunch of history in it. There's a bunch of facts in it. There's, there's policy in it. But um, it does give voice not give voice, they have a voice. Uh, it does empower a younger generation to talk more about how they see things and how they also see or would like to see the future. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I hope you read the magazine. I hope you enjoy the magazine. I hope you tell us what you think about the magazine. Uh, we really are always looking for people to feedback us on our work and let us know uh, yeah, what they think of it. And it's been a pleasure. <laughs> You just listened to a conversation between our Europe's editor-in-chief, Annalene Ophoff, and our deputy editor, Julie Simon. This episode has been produced by Are We Europe, mixed and edited by me, Jada Santana, and Neja Borkovic. Thanks for listening. 